0: Thank you for downloading another episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and in this episode we're talking about evangelical Christianity in America to get a better grasp of ongoing debates about faith and reason. Is it possible to be a religious believer and also an intellectual? I'm joined in this episode by Molly Worthen. She's an assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and she recently published a book called Apostles of Reason, The Crisis of Authority in American Evangelicalism. Her book can help us understand the ongoing nature of authority within evangelicalism and how it relates to some of the most interesting debates among the faithful today. Although Worthen herself is not an evangelical, her work exemplifies the sort of empathetic perspective made possible through responsible academic study. If you enjoyed this episode, take a second to rate us in the iTunes store and recommend us to your friends. It's Molly Worthen on evangelicalism, today on the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm a please read. This final sound. Molly Worthen joins us today. She's assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thanks for joining us today, Molly. At first, I want to say congratulations on publishing your new book, Apostles of Reason The Crisis of Authority in American Evangelicalism. It must feel good to have that finished and published.
1: It does. Thank you very much.
0: Now, I want to start off with the typical elevator conversation that you might have when people bump into you and find out that you were uh, writing or that you just published a book. So um, talk about how the book came about and, and why it interested you.
1: I came at this project as someone who had dabbled in journalism and continues to do a bit of journalism about contemporary religious life in America. And I found myself wanting to explain from a historical perspective some of the trends that I saw, particularly among younger evangelicals, some of the ways in which they seem to be challenging the assumptions of their parents' Christian right. And I found myself... Kind of backing my way into the the backstory of the culture wars, you could say, um, the the story of ideas and intellectual clashes that really lies underneath the newspaper headlines that that we associate with the culture wars, the kind of hot button political issues. And I became increasingly persuaded that. You can't understand American politics today until you really dig into that theology and you go back, not just a few years, but in some cases, centuries.
0: That's really interesting. I, I did my undergraduate in, in journalism and then kind of shifted over. My, my master's thesis was done using historical methods. And that bridge is really interesting, right? Because you have certain tools you bring as a journalist versus what you bring as a historian. And how did that relationship sort of play out for you? Because they're kind of different skill sets.
1: You're right. In, in my journalistic work, I primarily uh, interview living flesh and blood people. And in my historical work, I, I rely far more on archives. Although this book covers uh, history from you know the 1940s to the present. So of course, many of the people concerned are, are still alive. So uh, the, the archival work I did was informed by conversations with living members of these communities. And I found the two uh, methodologies to be very complimentary. Um, I found that it was very helpful after spending a couple of weeks in the archives, developing my own ideas about what was going on in these communities, to have a conversation with someone who was um, alive in those circles, experiencing some of these issues firsthand, to check some of my hypotheses, you could say. And as a historian, you know, I I never um, take living subjects totally at their word, and what I mean is that there are always things going on underneath the surface of what people say, but at the same time, I think that having conversations with with, uh, insiders, so to speak, is a really helpful check on the hubris of the academic scholar who can sometimes assume that that he or she knows this world better than the people who experience it
0: yeah that's kind of the benefit of doing a more contemporary topic as you've done is is having the opportunity to get those checks and balances from people who still identify as being within that tradition that you're investigating so you can really try to get inside their shoes a little bit more how about lengthwise i mean right because when you do a journalistic story Today they want them short. They want sound bites. Now you've done a full book. So did you find that uh, more liberating or was it uh, something that was a bit more harrowing for you?
1: I suppose the answer is is both. Um, a major reason why I am not a full-time journalist is because I do find that medium to be a bit limiting for the reasons you say, for the the very tight limits on the inches you're permitted, uh, the deadlines, uh, the, the ways in which the constraints of the reality of the business impinge on your ability to get, tell the story in, in great detail. So as I was um, working my way through graduate school, and this book is based on on my um, PhD dissertation, I did some freelance journalism on the side, primarily magazine profiles of up and coming interesting pastors and uh, evangelical schools. And that was all the time informing the digging I was doing in this uh, older, longer story. Uh, And I think that it it was nice to have the instant gratification, you could say, of the of the magazine pieces coming out, you know, getting feedback from readers about those things as I was beavering away on this, you know, what seemed at times to be a thankless project that was so, so far from being done. So I really appreciated the balance.
0: That's cool. There's an instant gratification almost with journalism where you get an article out, but at the same time, you can't really do that background digging. And, and so it's really cool to talk to a, someone who's done journalism and history because it's it's really interesting to bridge those two fields. Let's talk more specifically about how history uh, is brought to bear on religion. So for you, you found it beneficial to be able to talk to actual uh, religious people to sort of get their perspectives. And for some historians, that's obviously not possible if they're studying uh, peoples who are are long dead. But um, there are a lot of ways to come at religion as a topic. People can do um, theological arguments. They can evaluate current political activities. You saw history as the most useful tool here to, to understand today's evangelicals, as you mentioned before. Um, I just, before we move on, I want you one more time to sort of talk about the strengths and weaknesses of using history to understand religious actors.
1: Well, I suppose that it's important to recognize that professional history takes for granted some assumptions that people of faith would dispute, and that is uh, that a historian. Um, assumes that any artifact is a creation of its time and place, and the human beings involved with the production of that artifact uh, were were also creatures of their time and place. You know, this is the principle of historical relativism and particularly in regard to, to Scripture of course conservative many conservative Christians are uncomfortable admitting that premise um, and also I would say uh, they might object to admitting that premise when you're talking about religious institutions that they believe have a, a divine mission uh, whether it's um, a missionary organization uh, a school or or a church uh, the other thing that's important to recognize is that for a historian operating in a, in a secular context as I do, there are limits on the kinds of evidence that you can admit. Uh, that you you are limited to evidence that passes the, the test of the secular enlightenment that um, is empirically accessible to people uh, no matter what their, their faith persuasion might be. Uh, so that means you can't bring to bear, you know, religious witness. You can't bring to bear, um, you know, a, a divine message you believe you received from God, because non-believers don't have access to that. Uh, so all of that uh, shapes the story that I'm able to tell, um, you know, and and has implications for the way um, people of faith might, might encounter that story.
0: And how can you do that and stay true to the religious perspectives of the people you're talking about? For example, if someone was writing a history of Joseph Smith— um, uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would, would sort of want them to be sympathetic toward his claims. If someone, you writing about evangelicals, they would uh, want a historian to be sympathetic to, say, their, their experience of becoming born again. Uh, how can you be true to that experience, but also stay at that level of, of a secular view that can reach a, a wider audience?
1: I think that the historian's primary task is empathy. That is, getting into the mind of the person you're writing about whether they are you know your twin, or whether this is a person separated from you by centuries, by an ideological gulf, whether whether that person is Mahatma Gandhi or Adolf Hitler, I don't care. Your your job is empathy. Your job is to get into that person's worldview and figure out what makes them tick. So, um, as a historian, I, I try my best. To describe what I understand to be the worldview of the people I'm writing about, but then I do step back and I, I um, analyze that in my in my own framework, which they may not share. Uh, so I think that evangelical Christians would find some things that they recognize in my book, but they would also object. I think to some of the ways in which. I uh, analyze and synthesize the big picture um, because you know I have I have two jobs. I have that first job which is empathy, but then I have a second task which is to make sense of this community and this history for outsiders, for people who are not uh, members of that community and who want to know how it fits into the broader story of of Western civilization and, and American political history.
0: Now. As for you, how did your own religious perspectives come to bear in this project? I, I don't know about your religious background. Did that inform any of the work that you did?
1: I am a bit unusual. Uh, the vast majority of historians who specialize in the history of evangelical Christianity are themselves evangelical, or they were reared in that tradition. They have some kind of personal relationship to it. I am an outsider. I was raised in a, in a secular agnostic home. Uh, Neither one of my parents uh, subscribes to any um, systematic set of beliefs about the supernatural or an organized religious community. Uh, So I think that that has been an advantage and a disadvantage. Uh, Perhaps it means that because I'm not coming into this story with my own experience um, and maybe my own sense of who the good guys and who the bad guys are, um, I'm able to uh, maybe move more fluidly and comfortably um, in comparing different communities and seeing beyond boundaries that sometimes can divide the evangelical community. On the other hand, like, like any subculture, Evangelicalism and its constituent worlds, of course, evangelicalism is a very diverse community. Um, It has its own idiom, it has a particular language, um, you know, a, a kind of library of images and experiences that are familiar to people. And I am not fluent. So to speak, mm-hmm. in that in that language, and so this is what I what I uh, meant when I spoke earlier about the usefulness of being able to talk to living, breathing, flesh and blood evangelicals, uh, because it, you know it's especially important for me as an outsider to be able to to make sure that I'm um, I'm not too far off base in how I'm making sense of this world that in many ways is alien to the the one that I grew up with and was educated within.
0: Yeah, so I think that goes back to your your sort of guiding ethic of, of empathy then that you really try to get into the, the to the perspectives of the people that you're that you're working with. And let's talk about evangelicalism then. It's it's a it's a fluid term. Um, how do you define evangelicalism?
1: Well, I think that the way you define evangelicalism depends very much on what you're what you're trying to do. And this is a, a term that, that um, both believers and, and outside observers alike have been arguing about for, really, generations. Um, and it is such a diverse community that ranges from, you know, holy ruler, tongue-speaking Pentecostals to, you know, churchly conservative Anglicans. So what do we do here? Um, and many scholars, I think, have come to prefer kind of a checklist approach, a checklist of key doctrines. This checklist usually emphasizes uh, the born-again conversion experience, um, an activist approach to to the faith, emphasizing um, the need for evangelism, a high view of the the authority of the Bible, uh, things like this. And I think that checklists like that are useful. But I kept, in my own research, running up against the limits of of those checklists and finding that actually, once you get into it, people that I wanted to label as evangelical uh, were disagreeing about a lot of these things. Disagreeing, for example, about the born-again experience, whether you need one, whether conversion has to be this instantaneous emotional experience, or whether it can be a more gradual process. Uh, I found myself wanting to kind of come up with a rubric to describe these different Protestants who seemed to be in conversation with one another over the centuries, who seemed to have a stake in what one another got up to, so to speak. Um, And so I came to the conclusion that if they did not share a set of dogmas they did circle around a set of shared questions. I I came to emphasize the questions Mm. rather than Mm -hmm. the answers. Uh, And the questions that I found really unifying um, of the evangelical community from really the Reformation to today uh, are three. Uh, The first is how do you reconcile faith and reason? How do you keep these fused as one way of knowing? Secondly, how do you cultivate an authentic relationship with the divine, and become sure of your salvation? In other words, how do you meet and know Jesus, to use language many evangelicals would recognize? And last, how do you reconcile your personal faith with the demands and the constraints of an increasingly secular public square? And how do you do all three of these things in the absence of a single centralized, Church authority to guide you when things get complicated. Because those three questions I mentioned, I mean, those at some level are of interest or anxiety to people in a number of religious traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think makes evangelicals special is this vacuum of authority and the fact that they have to navigate these questions um, in the absence of, of a single commanding authority. And in fact, as a result, they they end up trying to please sources of authority that are really at odds with one another. They end up trying to be true to the standards of the of the rationalist enlightenment, while also um, adhering to uh, you know their forefathers' method of interpreting scripture, while also heeding the commands of personal, subjective, religious experience. And often these three things are are at odds, and at odds still with, with, you know, whatever their community might be demanding of them. And this is why I ended up subtitling my book, uh, you know, The Crisis of Authority in American Evangelicalism, because I I came to conclude that that this this crisis of authority has really been the abiding characteristic of evangelicals uh, for centuries.
0: And it seems to also help account for the diverse that, that you'll find uh, between different evangelical communities then is, is what they sort of look to as their ultimate authority, right? So uh, in the book, you say a quote here, uh, different groups have their own rules, assumptions, rewards, and punishments that govern the exchange of ideas, so it's almost as though you're, you're viewing evangelicalism as an ongoing conversation, and then there there are referees in that conversation, and there are rules, and there are penalties, and there are rewards that are given, and and you kind of trace those out. Now, when when Latter-day Saints think of authority, they usually think of things like they're they're formally appointed. Uh, Quorum of the Twelve Apostles or the, their first right. presidency. They also have a scripture canon, but but I think the Latter-day Saint priesthood is sort of really the locus of authority. And as you mentioned, evangelicalism has been much more diverse because they, they don't have a centralized body of official decision makers. So so in terms of a location, where where would you locate instances of evangelical authority, the referees, the ones who sort of Try to get people to follow the rules, or assess penalties, or reward uh, wins, so to speak.
1: Well, there's there's no structure analogous to the the structure of of the LDS Church, that's for sure. Uh, I, I think that the evangelicalism really demonstrates the centrifugal force of the Reformation and its most exaggerated form, and it really is characterized by this very weak ecclesiology, that is, very weak theory of of church governance and authority. And so you see a number of patterns. Uh, I think over evangelical history, we've seen the rise of kind of the warlord model of authority. So individual, very charismatic uh, pastors who create kind of their own empire, which often is not just... A megachurch, but maybe also an attached Bible Institute or an eponymous college, or you know, a set of parachurch organizations. The parachurch world, you know, is is far more important uh, as a locus of authority in evangelicalism than I think in in any other Christian confession. Uh, we've seen this recently in the controversy over um, the charity World Vision's flip-flopping on its position on on same-sex marriage. I mean, the reason why that was um, so important for the evangelical world is because these non-church entities um, are actually quite, quite powerful. Um, I think, though, that part of the trouble is that evangelicals themselves are not always forthright about how authority actually works in their, in their uh, culture, because they prefer to say it's, it's the Bible, the Bible's right. the authority, that, you know, sola, sola scriptura. Uh, And I I think one way in which this really gets very interesting is its impact on on higher education. I mean, part of the advantage of centralized authority in the case of the LDS church is that it provides um, a means to concentrate intellectual and financial resources in the flagship University, uh, and some other institutions of, of the church, you know, uh, Brigham Young University. Uh, I think the same has been true in, in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, one pattern we see in, in evangelical higher education is that every, every pastor wants to found his own Bible College and, you know, or even today, uh, university, and that has had the effect of really spreading resources too thin and often reinventing the wheel and has complicated what are already a set of profound, I think, intellectual challenges to the evangelical uh, interaction with with the secular academy.
0: Yeah, so, so you've identified things like charismatic leadership, uh, different schools, um, Probably, probably even publications, right? There are publishing houses yes. and places that sort of police the boundaries. Now, there's a, despite a, a lot of intellectual activity that goes on within evangelicalism, there's a pretty common stereotype in America, and, and that is that you can either be interested in reason and science uh, and human progress, or you can be an evangelical or, you know, or a religious person, and, and that there's little or no overlap there. So, I mean, even some evangelical figures like, like Mark Knoll, uh, he lamented what he called the scandal of the evangelical mind. And he said the scandal is, in fact, that there's not much of a mind. You know, And he was an evangelical himself. So there's something about evangelicalism that's, that people think has discouraged um, allegiance to the ideals of tolerance in logic and evidence and this sort of thing. So uh, I'm interested in, in what you think uh, about this particular stereotype because it does exist that uh, evangelicals don't think.
1: That's right. I think that it comes back to what we talked about earlier when you you were asking about the the methodologies of of professional history and and their limits because the reason that so many secular uh, members of the intelligentsia consider evangelical protestants to be anti-intellectual is because they don't play by the rules of secular intellectual life Uh, that is they don't respect the rule of the Enlightenment. They don't respect those boundaries on on evidence uh, that that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Because, you know, the the modern university is is not a free-for-all. Any intellectual community requires a set of rules in order to function. Uh, we need a set of common presuppositions so that I know you will understand, you know, my my arguments um, on on the same merits that I understand it. And evangelicals contest that very premise. Now, I would say that to some extent, this is a this is a problem, a a, a disconnect uh, between secular the secular academy and any traditional religious community at some level. The reason why it is more pronounced in the case of American evangelicalism is, first of all, because of that deep commitment to the authority of the Enlightenment and reconciling it with the authority of the Bible as they understand it, but but also because of the history here. Because, uh, you know, since the days of the clashes between modernist liberal theologians and the so-called fundamentalists in the early 20th century, uh, and the way in which those clashes were broadcast to wider America by uh, skeptical satirists like H.L. Mencken, you know, who covered the the Scopes trial uh, in 1925. Uh, this has been a, a trope in in popular culture, um, and it is the case that evangelicals since then have um well they've continued to to be part, you know, to attend secular colleges to a degree that maybe is underappreciated, they also went off and built their own infrastructure of rather self-contained uh, intellectual institutions, their own universities, their own seminaries, their own Bible colleges, uh, and really uh, turned inward intellectually. You know, whereas conservative evangelical biblical scholars in the late 19th century were interested in writing articles that would be read by the great theologians of Europe um, a generation later they were really speaking to, you know, preaching to the choir. They were, they had kind of given up trying to direct the, 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 the direction of um, the mainstream of, of liberal Protestant theology. Uh, So, so this is a, this is a question of, of how this history has come to inform people's experiences in the classroom. And I think the result is this, is the stereotype which, which has some truth to it if we understand it properly.
0: And I think it plays out really well in one of the chapters of your book where you sort of talk about the rise of of a certain brand of higher education in the United States. Um, You talk about uh, evangelicals who designed their colleges and seminaries as citadels to protect the faithful, not as schools with the confidence to invite all comers and entertain any challenge. So you just kind of touched on that as with the ascent of expertise and professionalization. Some evangelicals moved within that within that model others sort of set up their own locuses of of education right they sort of you know put up the ramparts and batten down the hatches so to speak and and i think people say this is due to the rise of higher criticism um theories of, uh, of evolution and things that seem to challenge the traditional authority of the bible maybe you can go into some more detail about some of the examples of of how these types of battles played out institutionally uh in the book, you talk about Fuller, for example. How did that sort of fit into this story of how universities were grappling with the issue of authority?
1: I think that the, the bigger context here is is that evangelical Protestants had a an abiding discomfort with the, the, the foundational principles of the modern research university, which came to the United States in the late 19th century from Germany. Uh, The first modern research university was Johns Hopkins, founded in 1876. And the modern research university's aim was to, and and is today, to advance the boundaries of knowledge and challenge received wisdom and provide an environment for original research. Now this is an important break with the tradition that had characterized American higher education up until this point. Um, before that point, you know, the, the very small number of Americans who went to college attended small liberal arts colleges, usually run by, by a church. Uh, and the purpose of these institutions was to form their students' characters and to pass down you know, received wisdom from, from their elders. You didn't have professors who were, uh, you know, had fancy degrees and a high level of specialization in their area, but rather generalists, amateurs, frankly, who were often young men who were in a, a holding pattern, teaching for a few years before they went on to join the clergy or, or um, become lawyers or, or something like that. Uh, and and so that, that discomfort with... Um, The aim of the modern university to overturn the authority of the Bible, um, for for example, really frames what's going on at at any of these institutions, and and Fuller is a good example. Uh, Fuller Theological Seminary was founded in 1947 by a a group of evangelical intellectuals and evangelists who called themselves neo-evangelicals. And they use that term to imply a kind of uh, reinvention of the presentation of orthodoxy. I mean, they they were all essentially recovering fundamentalists, and they did not differ in their theology one iota from you know very separatist fundamentalists who had thumbed their nose at higher education. But these neo-evangelicals like Harold Ockenga and Carl Henry, Billy Graham is the most famous. Uh, wanted to reintegrate Protestant, traditional Protestant intellectual life with the mainstream and refurbish Protestantism's intellectual reputation. And uh, with the support of of Charles Fuller, um, a very influential radio evangelist at that time who had made a a fortune um, actually in the the orange business, growing oranges, uh, they founded the seminary that was supposed to really be a step up from um, from other pre-existing um, Protestant seminaries but they they ran into a problem pretty quickly um, because as they tried to recruit scholars uh, some of whom came from abroad and did not have um, kind of native, familiarity with the American um, cultural setting, this kind of hangover from the the fights between the fundamentalists and modernists. They found uh, pretty quickly that the the limits on what they could tolerate uh, in terms of the debates about orthodoxy, uh, particularly the interpretation of the authority of the Bible, were tested very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the early 1960s, faculty were uh, arguing and um, resigning and getting into terrible fights over this issue of biblical inerrancy. Uh, The the claim that the, the Bible is wholly without error, and that we can treat it uh, as an authority not just on matters pertaining to salvation, but on every detail of science and history, from the scope of the flood to the most, you know, granular details of ancient Israel's politics. And what happened uh, in the early 60s was that the, the conservatives, who were really still fundamentalists on this issue of purity left Fuller and uh, Fuller ended up going in a more moderate now f- frankly fairly progressive direction um, today it is a seminary that I would say tolerates quite a bit of, of debate about theology about particularly um, how the gospel can be inculturated in non-western contexts uh, you know what um, what kinds of uh, you know cultural, what counts as the kind of kernel of the gospel and what is simply Western cultural accretion. I mean, these are all very lively conversations at Fuller, but I'm not sure that Fuller now represents the kind of core conservative, um, you know, heart of American evangelicalism in the way that that its founders hoped it would.
0: Could uh, more conservative-minded faculty um, sustain a career there, or would they be more unwelcome at, at Fuller, do you think?
1: Uh, well, I, I, I think that it's interesting. I mean, there have been a number of debates over the years at Fuller, and not just about this issue of, of inerrancy, but also about um, religious experience, and uh, there have been controversies over um, more kind of Pentecostally inclined professors doing exorcisms in the classroom mm. and things like this. So there's all kinds of, you know, debates over boundaries. Uh, I suspect that in in practice that more conservative uh, evangelical academics would would not would not apply for a job at fuller uh, mm. I, I, you know they just I, wouldn't
0: I, want to be there
1: I think I think that's right. I think that they they recognize that fuller is is um, operating on on assumptions that that they don't share but fuller is still, a prestigious evangelical institution. And I, I think you and if you were to go there and interview, you know, students you met, you know, on campus, you would find a pretty wide variety. And you would find certainly students who are far more conservative than faculty and you'd find a good degree of variety among the faculty. But um, you know, if you were really um, a more conservative evangelical, you would probably head down the road to to Talbot um, Theological Seminary, uh, which is associated with Biola, which was a uh, you know came has grown out of its um, Bible Institute roots and is now a full fledged university, but I think has hewed more more closely to the conservative, more traditional interpretation of classic orthodoxies.
0: Okay. So I think what I see is kind of the fulcrum of the book is this idea that that evangelicals when they're wrestling with with the problem of what happens when faith bumps up against reason and 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 that there's this sense of not wanting to sell out not wanting to sell the faith out to the assumptions of secular culture or you know the Secular has become kind of a bad word uh, in some circles, right? that that mm-hmm. you want you want to avoid that. And so I kind of see the tension there as very interesting, and you've hinted at it already. Uh, let me read you a quote from uh, Peter Ens. He's a, an evangelical scholar who's talked a little bit about this and and get your response to it. He says evangelicalism is not fundamentally an intellectual organism but more of an apologetic one. It did not come to be in order to inspire academic exploration but to maintain certain theological distinctives by intellectual means. So he sort of identifies apologetics as an example of, of Christians who wanted to – Uh, exalt the life of the mind but stay true to these fundamental beliefs at the same time and that there's a tension there. What what, what do you think about that?
1: I think that's right. That's a very interesting way of putting putting the problem Uh, in contrast to liberal Protestants, most of whom I would say are fairly comfortable cordoning off faith and reason, saying you know, there's one way in which I know the spiritual world, I have my relationship with Mm -hmm. God, and I think about the Bible, and then there's another way in which I understand you know, science and human origins and global warming and all of this, and it's fine that the Bible is not my authority for the latter. In contrast to that, uh, conservative evangelicals want to keep those two ways of knowing fused. And this is not a modern problem, I mean, this is a problem that Thomas Aquinas faced in his times. Right. the Greek philosophers debated, but of course it's a problem that has really become more pronounced in the modern age. And uh, the theory of biblical interpretation that has become so pervasive among evangelicals, this this theory called biblical inerrancy, really took its most um, formative steps in the 17th, 18th century, uh, in the context of the the early years of the Enlightenment. Um, Protestant thinkers at that time found themselves in a bit of a bind. They found themselves kind of surrounded on the intellectual battlefield. You know, on the one hand, they had these enlightenment philosophers and scientists who were busy debunking the miracles of Christ and saying that the gospels are not a historically reliable account. On the other hand, they were facing the Catholic theologians of the Counter-Reformation, who were marshaling scholastic uh, arguments, you know, this very logical style of argument to pick apart Protestant doctrine. And the Protestant theologians responded uh, in an an apologetic manner, as you say. They were concerned to defend the gospel. And they did so by co-opting the tools, the weapons of their enemies, and trying to turn those enemies back upon them. So they developed this highly rationalistic, highly scientistic mode of argument uh, that takes as its assumption that God is perfect and unchanging and therefore his revelation must be perfect and unchanging too in all matters pertaining to science and history not just right. salvation and this you know grew into its more mature form in the nineteenth century and on into our present time and the point here is that um, religion and secular science uh, have have grown up kind of intertwined with one another yeah. and always western western religious institutions have responded and co-opted and adapted to that scientific secular discourse you know you can't you can't take them apart and so the result is that the way in which evangelical protestants talk about the bible today is is as much as they protest secular humanism and the enlightenment it is deeply deeply informed by the Enlightenment
0: yeah I think that's one of the biggest ironies that your study um, uh, it's not a central focus of it but but reading between the lines it seems like one of the biggest ironies that you see is this at the same time as uh, of, of pu- trying to push away the idea of secular culture infiltrating the faith uh, embracing those very assumptions and methods to gird up in the face of criticism. So there's a certain type of apologetics that's uh, informed by the exact same assumptions that uh, that the frightening secular uh, uh, people adopted. It, it, it's really interesting. Um, so some evangelical leaders reading uh, through the book here, some of the evangelical leaders that you focus on uh, begin to fear that there were too many people capitulating to wider secular culture. But at the same time, they they had this anxiety that they wanted to be seen as respectable and as worthwhile intellectual partners, right, in the public square. And there's this great uh, quote that you have here. Um, I want to read this. and it's about these neo-evangelicals that you've been discussing here the neo-evangelicals were torn between their envy of the cultural esteem and achievement associated with modern universities and their loyalty to the medieval model of preserving and transmitting fixed knowledge to obedient pupils so this is kind of a way to shift into how education works there's two competing models there there's one where Education exists just to indoctrinate or just to say, here's what we believe, here are the beliefs. There's another type of education that's geared to talk about how do we come to believe? What's the process of seeking knowledge? Um, h- how do we negotiate between competing claims? And those two styles of learning seem to play out differently at different schools, right? So. Uh, and we talked about Fuller earlier, are there other evangelical schools that are more aligned with the idea of just speaking their truth rather than inviting conversation?
1: I became very interested in in the contrasts and similarities between fundamentalist Bible institutes and evangelical liberal arts colleges. So you know, the the differences between a a Wheaton, uh, you know about 25 miles outside of Chicago, probably the the most prestigious evangelical liberal arts college and say moody bible institute or the bible institute of los angeles now now biola uh... founded you know with different missions and i, I think what you see are some of the same patterns playing out at, at, at both places but um, in in different ways uh... wheaton really considered itself in the early twentieth century to be a, a fundamentalist institution very much a place where um, Christian parents could send their kids and expect their kids to be protected, although Mm -hmm. more perhaps worldly than you might expect in that many of these kids were missionary kids who had grown up in different cultures and had different experiences. And um, I spent a lot of time going through, you know, back issues of the student newspaper there and the student literary magazines. And what I found was that in the 1940s and early 50s, these, these student journalists were very devout and very committed to their parents' understandings of orthodoxy and and really not, not interested in, in writing about politics. Um, but that begins to change. And as I uh, combed through issues in the late 50s, I started noticing more engagement with politics, more coverage of the wider world, more ambition. And then it really kind of exploded in the early 1960s when... Um, uh, Wesley Earl Craven, who uh, your listeners might associate <laughs> with uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street yeah, it's movies, Wes Craven, this, yeah, yeah the West <laughs> the West Craven. So he went to he went to Wheaton, and he was um, the uh, appointed editor in chief of the, uh, the Lit Mag there in what I think 1962, and uh, his first issue he um, printed just this this screed, this manifesto in the in the front of the issue, basically saying uh, we are not. Uh, cooperating with the you know the, the self-censorship that has governed student journalism from from uh, you know before this point uh, to today we are we are confronting the ugly sides of um, human existence because this is this is what Christ, wants us to do. You know, we shouldn't be shrinking from um, the the complexities and the suffering that go into the the human uh, experience. We should be writing about them. And he wrote very dark stories, kind of morally ambiguous stories. And this was a big problem for the administration. I mean, they got all kinds of nasty um, complaining letters from alumni. This is not what we should be doing. They ended up yanking him and, and, um, you know, replacing him with another more cooperative student. Um, But in this context, Context, uh, we can see young evangelicals starting to push the boundaries and explore. And in the context of a liberal arts school, they had a, a pretty committed faculty. You know, there were some, some leading lights there who really wanted to encourage their students to question, uh, who introduced them to Christian writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who are not American evangelicals, who don't didn't come out of that fundamentalist um culture of, you know, limits on what it's okay to read and, you know, rules on, on, on behavior and these sorts of things to really try to broaden the Christian imagination. And now if we contrast that with, um, the Bible institutes, a place like Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, um, or, or Biola. uh, I mean, Moody was founded in the late uh, 19th century, uh, the others somewhat later, these institutions were really founded as a giant middle finger to the secular, you know, uh, higher education establishment. And they were founded, you know, to not uh, engage with the kind of uh, production of elite degrees and studying of, of all the liberal arts that characterized the modern research university. Well, like uh, they,
0: accreditation, right? Like, how, right, how they did didn't happen? want like, any want
1: part accreditation. Of that. Yeah, yeah. Wheaton did. I mean, Wheaton was actually early, an early adopter, but most of them wanted no Explain part of that. Explain
0: that for a second about what, what it means to be accredited real quick. To
1: be – for an institution yeah. to be accredited means to basically submit to the, the governance and auditing of peer institutions. Um, so, you know, most um, – most mainstream universities and colleges today are part of a, an association of—it's not a government body or anything like that. It's an association of peer institutions, and every few years they, they'll send a representative committee to your institution, make sure you know you're you're following basic practices of um, academic freedom. Your library is in good shape. Your your degrees are serious. This is to sort of keep everybody's programs respectable and interchangeable, so that you know if if a student wants to transfer. From institution A to B, those at B know that they're getting a you know a similar 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 um, education. This sort of thing. These
0: and schools didn't want that, right? Like that's
1: right. That's right. With a few exceptions, conservative evangelical schools did not want to participate uh, to to submit to the uh, standards set by secular institutions. Um, I mean, a place like Moody, I mean, their, their early coursework, uh, you know, you'd, you'd go there to study things like, well, Bible, but English Bible, you wouldn't bother with any of the, you know, the ancient languages. You'd study, um, missionary aviation, you'd study pagan psychology, surgery, uh, basic dentistry, things that you need to know to, to go into, you know, oh, okay. Uh, okay. You know gotcha. darkest Africa gotcha. and, and spread, spread the, the gospel, right? But what, what starts to happen at, at both these Bible institutes and these Christian liberal arts schools, I would say, but it's really pronounced at the Bible schools, is that their, their students are increasingly worried about getting jobs, and not just jobs in the missionary world, but in the broader world. Uh, you know, we have uh, World War II and the GI Bill, you know, brings a, a whole new, new host of, of uh, degree seekers to these campuses, as it does to institutions all over the country, and they have different expectations. They wanted to be able to go on, maybe to law school, and, and be able to count on their degree transferring. They wanted some training in the sciences. You know, they wanted um, a broader education. You know, than than just one to prepare them to go, you know, into permanent mission work. And so these administrators at schools like this were really wrestling with, frankly, you know, the demands of their bottom line. I mean, whatever their objections might have been on an ideological grounds to the aims of the neo-evangelicals who founded Fuller, you know, they weren't interested in that. They found themselves compelled to be interested because they needed to recruit the faculty and build the programs that would give their students what, what the students demand it and so they are, they're forced into this minuet with secular academia. They end up constructing their own accreditation body um, mm-hmm. but but you know creep closer and closer to um, you know adhering to at least some of the standards of, of secular uh, academia and many of many of these schools which began their lives as Bible institutes are now full-fledged universities with, You know, big science labs and 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 you know the whole the whole nine yards.
0: You also there's a really interesting part too where you sort of trace this this uptick in in evangelicals who are getting uh, Ph.D.s and Th.D.s at places like Harvard at more respectable institutions and they're evangelical. But but you also identify some strategies that they had uh, because it was difficult for them to get those higher degrees and not step on the fault lines. Uh, of their own faith right so you talk about focusing on on particular areas uh, like its archaeology or something instead of higher criticism what what are some of the strategies that that evangelical scholars would use then to avoid cultural shibboleths
1: that's right. I mean, I think this is one of the big misunderstandings about evangelical history. Um, you know, they evangelicals are not dummies, and this is a this is a subculture that's always had a significant number of serious intellectuals with you know fancy degrees. But you're right. Um, they did this often in a way that that would avoid too deeply challenging their their own worldviews. Um, so sometimes it it. Uh, would involve the selection of their area of study as you say so rather than you know, uh, going into a degree program that would force them to apply higher biblical criticism to, um, you know, the letters of Paul or, you know, the, the Genesis creation narrative, they would focus on on philosophy or some area of archaeology that, that wasn't too dicey. Often they would go abroad, um, and this is still true today. Evangelicals love to do advanced degrees at universities in the United Kingdom and to some degree also on the European continent. Uh, this is because faculty over there, uh, not being in, you know, immersed in the American political context. Tended to not have the same assumptions about their students. You know, they they weren't they they were not necessarily expecting one thing or another from these American Christian students, and so evangelicals could go over there and and operate a bit more freely. Um, And in some cases, this enabled them to get the credential and then return with their faith intact. Another way they would do this is sometimes. um, faculty would take up an appointment um, at, at an institution in, in the U.S. Like, uh, like Biola without a Ph.D., but then pursue that Ph.D. while they were teaching. Uh, which enabled them to kind of stay immersed in the Bible College world, you know, without and, and often they do this at a an institution that's sort of sympathetic, maybe because it had church roots of its own. Um, University of Southern California is a good example, which has Methodist roots. Um, but I want to emphasize that that for for some evangelical intellectuals, the experience in higher education was one that that deeply impacted and changed their faith. I mean, few of them became atheists, mm-hmm. but a good number. Uh, uh, developed a you know a kind of living relationship and acceptance with uh, of higher biblical criticism. Um, a good number adjusted their ideas about eschatology about the end times. And and these scholars um, and many of whom ended up at, at Fuller have really worked hard to try to carve out a middle way to try to write scholarship that allows lay believers to see that they can accept some of the fruits of um, modern scholarship without, as you put it, selling out the faith. But I'm not sure that they are the popular leaders of the so-called evangelical mind. I mean, the reality is that their their influence has been somewhat limited.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: Well, I think that uh, a lot of it has to do with what is probably a, a feature of academia generally, and that is the the rather inaccessible register um, of much of the knowledge production that goes on in universities. Um, you know, many of these books are not very easy to read. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, evangelicalism has um, a deep ambivalence toward its own intellectual elites. You know, there's a fierce strain of populist anti-elitism in evangelicalism uh, that I think predisposes evangelicals to be a, a little bit skeptical of even, even the, you know, the books and articles produced by, by their own seminaries, universities, and mm-hmm. colleges, a sense that they need to take these things with a grain of salt, that there is such a thing as too much book learning, and it distances you from, you know, from the true faith. And, and therefore, uh, you know, they, they have tended to really gravitate toward those more popular writers who I think have devoted their careers to reaffirming evangelicals pre-existing ideas about the Bible and about history. Um, People like David Barton, who's a very influential kind of Hmm. amateur, uh, lay yeah. uh, evangelical historian who, who's who been able to align, you know, his story of the American founding with the principles of the Christian right. Someone like Ken Ham, uh, the Australian who runs the very influential creationist ministry, Answers in Genesis. These guys are far more influential yeah. than someone like Mark Knoll, you know, as, yeah. as as wonderful as Mark Knoll's work has been for evangelicalism.
0: There's there's something that, that I wanted to kind of connect that conversation to, and that's that. That you found that sometimes with greater academic freedom for young evangelicals at universities and colleges something new emerged you call a a sacramental sense of life and this is uh, as these students became more exposed to some of the ideas of secular education that they were able to successfully integrate those into their religious life as well so it wasn't that they became indoctrinated in the ways of the secular world uh, but that through engagement with more secular learning and, and higher education, they were able to translate that into a sacramental sense of life. Can you can you talk uh, briefly about that?
1: This is something that I, I think I saw uh, really play out at, at Wheaton College um, in the latter, say, third of the 20th century. Um, as scholars there, faculty there, encourage their students to read more broadly, read, read fiction, literature, read non-Christian authors, um, they, they encourage their students to be um, open to these, uh, you know, these sources of insight into the human experience on the theory that, you know, all truth is God's truth. And, you know, this also coincided with, I think, a, a surge of interest among many American evangelicals in a richer, more historically grounded worship experience, um, so we start to see a small but significant number of evangelicals dabbling in not just the Anglican tradition, but Catholicism and e- even Eastern Orthodoxy, and and some some have converted, um, and some simply have kind of imported. Um, more liturgical worship into their own evangelical settings because of an increasing sense that there was a kind of barrenness to the the very Protestant low church uh, worship tradition that, you know, we would see in many, many Baptist-inspired megachurches, for example. And I, I think that um, the response of evangelicals who were part of these movements to those conservative critics who would say, hey, you are Compromising with worldliness, you are, you know, capitulating to secular standards of intellectual life, and you're dabbling in, you know, among, among the papists, and you're, 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 you're borrowing all these accretions, you know, mm-hmm. that the whore of Babylon added to to the Bible. Um, their response would be, well, well no, uh, we're simply. Um, opening ourselves up to kind of the diversity of ways in which God has manifested himself, um, against which evangelicalism had sort of closed itself off. And, um, you know, developing a, a, a tentative, curious relationship with history and trying to recover some of the insights and practices that Christians have developed over the centuries and say you know those things aren't Catholic those things are not just the purview of, of the Eastern Orthodox those are goods for all Christians to to enjoy and seek as a way of connecting with the divine and and I think that there's that there's a um, a powerful truth to to what they're expressing there
0: that kinda of leads us up to the to the to the last question and that's pertains to kind of where we are today so I think um, according to the book, evangelicals are left with multiple authorities that they can follow. There's there's as many authorities as there are people almost. Um, but yet this diverse community of believers have found various ways of of seeking to, to be closer to God and and to understand their faith by following different kinds of authorities. There's a quote by uh, a man called Roger Olson that you, that you cite. And it's actually from a book that was edited by Robert Millett, who was a Uh, That's right. Brigham Young University religion professor. So this is a really interesting quote that I think speaks well to the state of affairs today. So I'll I'll read that and then just have you comment on it to close. Um, He says, True authority, authority of the highest and most important kind, lies on the side of right and not might. In deciding what's right, a person ought to take into account many factors, including – now he's going to list a lot of factors (laughs) (laughs) – including tradition and community consensus – But in the final analysis, the person seeking truth must go with true authority against tradition and community consensus if reason in the broadest and best sense demands it. It is never right to go against reason. When rational proof is unavailable, as is often the case, a person may legitimately go with reasons of the heart or simply submit to tradition and community. But when these contradict themselves or prove baseless, except on whims and fancies of religious leaders, the person has every right and even should break away from traditional belief and community consensus or hold belief in suspension until greater light dawns. In the final analysis, the individual really is the only one who can and must decide what he or she believes is true, especially in matters of ultimate concern. So he lists a lot of different things, uh, you know, tradition, community, reason, emotion. But what's interesting to me is that he lands back on the individual. And that seems a very evangelical solution to me. That uh, there's a communal element to evangelicalism, but it seems to be founded in in individualism distinctly. The re- person's relationship to God is an individual one. Now, if you can comment on that on that quote.
1: That's right. I mean, a- evangelicalism is a is a modern religious tradition. And and the thing that makes it modern most of all is this emphasis on the individual, this kind of hyper-individualism. And I have seen this hyper-individualism express itself even among those evangelicals who've gotten very interested in, in Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, with the exception of those few who have gone whole hog and converted. What you see is that they approach these traditions as a kind of theological and liturgical smorgasbord, uh, you know, from which they can pick and choose. It's Mm -hmm. like being at an all-you-can-eat religious buffet, and you do whatever you want. You can mix, you know, Benedict's uh, monastic rule with, you know... John Chrysostom's prayers, you know, you've used some incense as you like, and what we see is that they are very, they're still quintessentially evangelical in their approach to these authorities. They're not submitting themselves to the authority of these traditions, and often the way in which they co-opt these traditions would really trouble Catholics or or the Orthodox, because they have a very different view of authority, And, and you're right, you know, it is one that really foregrounds the individual. I think outsiders tend to, to have this idea in their mind of evangelicalism as this very authoritarian tradition, this one in which, you know, believers don't think for themselves and they follow the rule of their pastor or whatever. But, you know, while there are kind of authoritarian impulses present, the main theme is the one you've identified. It is this powerful individualism which, which contributes a kind of instability and anxiety, but also energy and vitality to American
0: evangelicalism. Thanks, Molly. That's uh, that's Molly Worthen. She's the author of Apostles of Reason, the Crisis of Authority in American Evangelicalism. We appreciate you taking time to join us today, Molly.
1: It's been my pleasure.